Our bodies and minds are not separate, so it's not surprising that mental health can affect our bodies. Depression can come with headaches, fatigue and digestive problems, while anxiety can create an upset stomach, for example. Other physical symptoms of mental health can include insomnia, restlessness and difficulty concentrating. According to the South African Medical Journal, mental disorders comprise five of the ten leading causes of health disability. Welcome to the Reimagine Mental Health series on Investec Focus Radio SA, brought to you by Investec Life. I'm Katie Katapodis. In this episode of the podcast series, we'll examine the relationship between mental and physical health. Joining me for today's discussion is Nicola Tega, Global Head of Investec Careers and Employee Experience, Dr. Kefashio Mwangi, MD, PhD, Medical Officer and Advisor for Non-Communicable Diseases and Mental Health at the World Health Organization, and Professor Leslie Robertson, an adjunct professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Advertisrand, who also leads the Sedibeng District Specialist Mental Health Team in Gauteng. Nicola, I'd like to start with you. You had a really personal experience with burnout, and I think your story is an important one to tell. Won't you kick off by just telling us a bit about what you went through and how you identified it? Sure. So it was around about 2018. Uh, it was a high-pressure year for me through many different aspects, personal and professional. I was studying. I had a, a relatively large job. Uh, I had a team of people that I felt responsible for, and that, that uh, saying is important to me there. But it was a lot of work, a lot of stretch in terms of learning, and I was a mom of two youngest children. Um, and my own mom passed within that year. And it was an unforeseen incident, and my mom passed relatively quickly, and I took on quite a lot of responsibility in terms of wrapping up her estate, but I had to take back all of the pressure in terms of my children and my lifestyle, and I needed to find new ways of supporting myself. And I was not mindful of me in this process, to be quite honest. I just went into automatic mode. I picked up what I could. I put more pressure on myself to ensure that I was trying to hold all of these balls that I was juggling um, during that period. And all I could remember was saying to myself, December holidays are on the horizon. If I can just get to December holidays, I'm going to be okay. And uh, I did go to to my leader at that stage who was hugely supportive. And I said, I can't even get to the last three days. I have to leave today. And she said, go. Got on an airplane with my kids the next day, traveled down to a family holiday home. And on the first night, there was an intruder in the house. And I faced this intruder with my son on my hip, about to walk into my daughter's bedroom. And I froze. And uh, that's the moment I knew something was wrong. I phoned my husband and I spoke to my family that evening to say, I'm going to go through this holiday, but I need support and help. But something's wrong and I need to ask for help. And uh, I knew the term burnout. Don't get me wrong. I've worked in a corporate for long enough. You know, I'm in the HR space. So it's a familiar term for me. I couldn't say that that's exactly what I was experiencing at, at that stage, but I knew I had massive physical fatigue. I knew that I was losing memory capacity and I had mental blur. It was almost like I was pregnant again, to be quite honest, for the women that are listening to this podcast. But <laughs> sleep was problematic for me, obviously, at that stage as well. And I went to a close friend um, and a homeopath and I said, I can't start speaking about what I'm experiencing because I can't find the words, but something's wrong and I need help. And she said, next Let's do full bloods. Uh, I think it's burnout, you know. Um, and through that, we got hormones firing. I could then start to look for other aspects of help that I needed and started to create building blocks. But that was 
the telling tale for me, it was that moment that I froze. It was a terrible feeling in terms of being a mom and I didn't fight, I didn't flight, I didn't scream, I did nothing. Um, and that's when I knew I really needed help. What an experience, Nicola. Did this help you shift the way you see things in the workplace? Particularly, I mean, you've got a massive title and it's a massive job and it almost feels like you've got the weight of people's careers, of an entire company on your shoulders, global head of investor careers and employee experience. I mean, that's a big deal here. Did you find that you had to kind of pivot and think about different ways and means of supporting teams. So I've ended up in this space around employee experience and a really key focus for the organization around well-being. Um, Investec always has had such care and concern for the people that work here, but we understand that we need to strategically build out far more capability in supporting human beings in our workplace, understanding all the stresses that you have in life, the different roles that you play, including a very high-performance environment. So our whole mantra is to help people proactively manage daily habits to support themselves and to build resilient energy versus the sprint type energy which you think in a corporate you're required, you know? I want to bring Dr. Moigi in now. Doctor, we heard Nicola speak very openly about how she reached out for help and said something's wrong. That doesn't always happen because the fear of stigmatization is really real, isn't it? Sure. And um, I'm sure we will open up in looking at stigma more uh, critically as the podcast goes on. And I'm happy as she was speaking, she used the term wellness. And, you know, as we began uh, from the WHO's perspective, we usually want to define health in the first place. Because uh, if you were to meet with Nicola, she was going for holiday. Looking at her, she's not ill. She's okay because the common balance of whether you're healthy or not is she looks all right. Now, there brings the issue of uh, stigma because um, in the workplace, like if Nicola was to say, I'm depressed or I'm suffering from anxiety in the workplace, do we look at her the same again? Does it affect her career? Does it affect the way her peers look at her in the workplace? Is she still the same person we should be putting responsible of other people's well welfare? You know, so questions start coming up. And that tells us about what I would look at as the type of stigmas, because you've look at you've asked me about stigma. The very first I would look at it would be like um, the personal stigma. Already you label yourself. Usually you, you, you start looking at yourself and feeling, should I come out? Or when I come out, uh, what will people feel about me? Uh, and so that's a personal thing that is informed by the prejudice around the misinformation, the how we are socialized. Um, and I'm sure later we will be talking about how different populations look at mental health because that has an impact on how we come out. That's one. Two, you could have what we call maybe public speech stigma. How we look at a person with mental health. How we would look at Nicole like she says, hey, I'm burning out. Or do we look at it as a sign of weakness or as a sign of strength? To me, it's a sign of strength to come up and say, come on, I think I'm having so much on my plate. I need to, it's not a sign of weakness. Uh, it's actually a sign of strength. And then the other one I would look at it, and I'm sure Prof can talk more about it, is the professional stigma, which you look at, look at it from... Um, a perspective of mental health workers, they themselves have stigma on themselves and also they themselves can stigmatize patients inadvertently. So that's a broad area that you can talk about. And the final one is the institutional one, like in Investec. When a staff comes out and says, I'm depressed or I'm burning out, what's the reaction of the institution? Is it to rally around to help them or start thinking, my, we need to look for somebody who cannot crack. This guy is weak, you know? So, and I'm sure that conversation can, uh, can come in uh, as we go along. Professor Leslie, I want to bring you in here as well to say the relationship between mental health and physical health is a critical one, is it not? So th there's a lot of comorbidity between mental and physical health. I think what we're talking about up to now has been somebody who's been very well physically and mentally 
and doing very well in your career and then has burnout, maybe some depression from bereavement, some, you know, and, and just a lot of stress actually all at once and coping with that. And there's been a recent study and it was reported on in News24 analyzing our own medical aid data showing that people who with a mental illness who are on treatment in South Africa, and this is the ones who can afford private health care, die earlier than those who have not got a mental illness. And the key is, in a way, what you said, Nikki, was the helplessness, that there's more happening than you can control. And if that happens to somebody very chronically in your very early formative years, you're probably more likely to develop more severe mental illness or be more easily prone under stress to more severe depression, more severe anxiety. So, and all of that is associated with greater physical health conditions. Then you talked about the physical manifestations of mental illness, and that is slightly different. So we see a lot of what we call somatization in South Africa. But I think it happens more in population groups where there's less acceptance of having a mental illness. So you would much rather complain of your headache and your neck pain and your back pain. Because it's tangible, is it not, Prof? It's tangible and it's acceptable. Understandable, yeah. It's understandable. You're allowed to get the time off work for back pain. Get time off work for stress. Oh, for goodness sake, that woman, she's always stressed. I'd also like time of work for stress, but for severe back pain, that's great. Bed rest, some painkillers. And unfortunately, it leads to over-prescribing of painkillers. Currently, globally, we're looking at over-prescribing of opioid analgesics for chronic pain conditions. And it's often this group who won't, don't want to come. And because of stigma, because of discrimination, it's much more acceptable to The undiagnosed to group. Yes. This missing yes. middle, so to speak, yes. of patients who just don't want and to speak up. Those are often your more softer depression, anxiety, stress-related conditions, and there may be also some maladaptive coping skills that the person's developed in their lifetime which perpetuate poor coping. Because they may very well be high-functioning. Yes. They may may very well have highly successful careers. On the face of it, the family looks good. Everything appears to be okay. What steps, doctor, would you say one needs to take in an instance like that where you are aware that something's not quite right but have taken no active steps to help yourself? When you're looking at health, there many dimensions and um, especially the professional one if I may say is the one we tend to guard at the expense of the rest like for example when she's having all this stress she can have less time with the children less time with the husband you know for the work front not to suffer and you've asked an important question of how what do you do but even before the question of what do you do how do I tell that I have a mental health problem unfortunately we are usually the last one to realize that you're struggling because of the way we are socialized Um, mental health has been stigmatized so the first first thing is is to realize that it's okay not to be okay. You know, I I think that's where everybody needs to start, that not being okay is all right. Once in a while, we get to that space and we should be allowed to because we're human beings. And then we should have what I I would call creative expressions. You know, everybody has how they dissipate stress or these anxieties. Somebody could go to sports. Another one could join a support group. Another one could go singing, music. We all have these. And sometimes we're able to dissipate them in our stress into those. Everybody has their own ways, but all of them boil down to 
networking, human beings, the minute we meet and talk, for example, even this discussion, it might be a podcast we're talking, but it's therapy to some extent. Well, that's what I'm really hoping, that this podcast will, you know, someone is listening, someone is is is, is identifying and seeing and hearing themselves in all of this, and they feel like they, they're actually part of a community and not necessarily excluded. Perfect. One of the things I think we've got to do is slow down. And this is so difficult. It's not like it's new news, this. We see it everywhere, but it's not easy to do. And it's not easy to accept ourselves when we slow down. We expect to come to the end of the day having achieved something. So I've often thought of the time when I was a a young mom with two small children, and I took a lot of time off work with my kids when they were little and promptly got very depressed because I found it so hard to waste time with my kids. And come to 5 p.m. and you've actually done nothing. And you haven't ticked all those boxes. So we, it's slowing down, but it's also the self-reflection. And self-reflection and honesty with oneself. So we talk about the, the physical manifestations of our common mental health conditions. So I'm talking really about depression, anxiety, mild to moderate and, and stress-related conditions. Think about when you have a headache, why you might have that headache. Is it Something very obvious, haven't drunk enough water, you've been running around, it's been hot, you, you were up too late last night on the computer last night, you know, something like that. Or is it that you're niggling over a fight with your mother-in-law from the last week, or you've not been happy with something in your partner, but you haven't said it and you don't know how to? So is it something that's causing your muscles to tense up and you don't really want to confront it and you're avoiding it? And boy, oh boy, your mind is not going to let you avoid it forever. It's going to come out and the headache, the back pain, the shoulder pain, the neck pain. So usually where I work, which is in townships, we ask people if they're feeling depressed and they'll say no. Oh, they've got a headache and they're tired and fatigue, being unable to get up to cook that meal, to do the jobs you would do normally. That is a big sign. And I suppose the paracetamol will only go so far. I want to talk about something else that's a reality for all of us. Our country, our world, it's going through a very difficult time at the moment. You know, a simple commute from home to work, from home to school is riddled with stresses of load shedding. And maybe you didn't have water that morning and potholes and we've got service delivery issues and the lights are out and maybe it's raining. And there is a lot happening in the country at the moment. How are we able to elevate ourselves almost above that and not become of that, you know? But we've got to, at some point, be able to breathe through it, I imagine. Actually, in a sense, we have to readjust our framework and start thinking. And I don't mean not have expectations of a better life. We must always work for improvement, but acceptance of something that's of adversity and then development of resilience. That's such an important lesson. Because we are measuring our normality against an illusion. And it's actually against a, like a Hollywood movie. It's not against true reality. I love what you said there, measuring, and I wrote it down, measuring our normality against an illusion. That's a big lesson for us. And I sit here and I listen to you, Prof, and I think, gosh, I complain a lot at home in front of my kids, load shedding, water shedding, if it's taken me an additional hour to get home. And I'm wondering what lessons we are teaching them about 
resilience or problem solving or, or collapsing in a heap and going, I can't bear this anymore, whatever, you know, one's mantra may be at the end of a really, really hard day. And you spoke about your young children, Nicola. How do we help them in this process while simultaneously helping ourselves so we're not all collapsing in a heap simultaneously? I think the piece on children uh, is hugely important because I think what we do as kids, you know, we teach them geography, we teach them history, we teach them all these fabulous things at schools. And for me, I worry that we're not teaching our kids enough life skills, to be quite honest. I think almost play therapy should be part of your curriculum. You know, you should normalize it again. You're going through a bad patch or you can't you can't express something or you can't comprehend what you're feeling, etc. You should be able to go to counseling or play therapy or something to learn the tool. Because I think that's what we need to do at our kids. I'm definitely not perfect in front of my kids. And Katie, I loved your example of you run and you shout at everyone because you've just come through whatever, load shedding traffic. And oh gosh, I maybe shouldn't have expressed it like that with the kids. I think it's okay because I, I often say to them, you see that mom's not perfect. You see, I'm not perfect. But I explain to them, you know, what is it that triggered you? What is the emotion? And I've been trying to express that far more, specifically with my little boy, actually. I've seen many times people say like, okay, pull yourself together or, you know, okay, you don't need to cry about that. I'm saying, no, no, please cry about it. But I'm going to ask you when you're crying about it, tell me exactly what you're feeling. Because then you can start to express their emotions. So we, we come back again to distinguishing a bit between what is part of being human. And unfortunately, anxiety is part of being human. So it's not surprising now that we're talking about it more, that so many children are coming up with anxiety. Of course they're anxious because they're human. And if they're not, then you're going to worry that you've got somebody who's not okay on your hands. So if you're anxious... It's fine. So we're not teaching our kids to handle their anxiety and how to cope with it. We're, as you say, often medicating it or using distractions such as games and things or trying to relieve them of the stress. I'm from Kenya. I'm an African. And the way we engage with mental health is totally different from probably the way you engage with mental health. Uh, I grew up where Mental health issues is not talked about. It will be ostracized in community. We label them, we brand them. And I'm trying to change that. My children can come to me one time and say, Dad, I'm stressed or, and I don't react in the same way that my mother would have stressed, Eva would have said that 30 years ago. And you talk about that stigma. When my kids were young and I used to leave three-ish or two-ish to go and do something with my children, there was still that stigma of, oh gosh, you know, someone working half day or she must be a mom because that's why she's leaving early. Or I used to answer the telephone and if people said, can you help me? I'd be like, yes, no, no problem. I would never admit I was on the side of a cricket field or I was taking my daughter to the doctor, you know. So but if that was in our own heads or it was created around the society around us, it doesn't matter because it existed and it controlled you in the way that you operated. So this higher level level of flexibility is definitely assisting in terms of being able to do both. There's no doubt about that. So we have an amazing employee assistance program where you can tap into psychologists, counselors, lawyers, financial advisors because of the financial well-being crisis in our country and globally. So we do have a lot of support. And I think most good organizations do. I think that they understand the importance um, of what we're talking to because it all impacts performance. You took the words out 
of my mouth. Ultimately, productivity is impacted if we're not looking at our team members. And, I, you know, if we're not looking at them holistically like that, what then? You know, we see it so much in the, in the sphere of journalism where the trauma of reporters on the ground is very real because they're seeing very traumatic things playing out in front of them. Yet we think, ah, it's okay, you've survived another story. You had a bulletproof vest. Suddenly, you know, just pack it in the car. Off you go to another story. And it's a constant, you know, some may call it the new cycle. I call it the new cyclone. And we're all getting swept up in this new cyclone in our media industry. And it's very, very dangerous. And ultimately, we're losing excellent journalists. We're losing them. They're going into corporate. They're going into into positions that are not as stressful. And you don't want that, I imagine, in the, in, in the investec environment, because if they can feel whole and able to, to grow and prosper in the environment, you get better productivity. And you want to build resilience, you see. Mm. As I say, I mean, performance is, is a longer term aspect of output. We, we can't think of marathon run as being the heightened performance. It's the resilient performance where you're building team capability and team performance. And yes, there's a care and concern and an empathy uh, for the human being in it as well. You know, we speak about the water quality in a fish tank is important, not the health of the fish. The health of the fish is one thing, but what water are you putting them into? And I think that concept uh, rings true to most. It's a really good analogy, and I must say that's really good news, Nikki. And I know there's two um, WHO documents which were published last year on workplace mental health, the policy guidelines and then a policy and then a a more detailed guideline. Um, And what you're talking about are the sort of generic interventions at a workplace because burnout is not an illness by the ICD-10 or 11 diagnoses. It's a manifestation of chronic workplace stress which has been poorly managed. So it's not something to be treated like an illness, it's something to be treated as part of a system. And obviously some organizations will be more easy to adapt to those. I think journalism is going to be very difficult, particularly your freelance or investigative journalists. You know, I recall I recall conducting a session for a really big newsroom recently, and it was online, and there were trained experts, psychologists, SADAG was outstanding, and the questions that were coming in from SADAG were being met with silence. There was absolute silence on the other end. Nobody was speaking up. And we had a very astute member of SADAG there who turned to me as the event organizer to said, actually, why don't you kickstart on a scale of one to 10? How was your day today? And I said, wow, (laughs) it was definitely a three. I had a really crappy day. Uh, And I've got to admit it, it really was a tough day for ABC reasons. And only then did the comments start popping up and everyone online started going two, three. There were one or two sixes and sevens, but really not much more. And particularly male colleagues who were there not willing to speak up nearly half as much as their female counterparts. It's good that you've touched on this. And uh, it's not only in mental health. If you go to HIV, the, the, the health-seeking behavior of the male is and not only in South Africa. Some joke was made that men go to hospitals when they are being born and just about to die. You know, And, and it sounds weird, but um, look at the late presentation for something like cancers. We, we will be stoic. And even when your wife is telling you something is wrong, you're saying, no, 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 I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Until that day when now you can no longer defend yourself and you, you have to be helped. And so, you're not so good. Yes, and you're terrible. It's late now. 
we are struggling to uh, catch up with what we would have done earlier. So first of all, we have to normalize the, the statement I said, it's okay not to be okay. It, let the man feel that it's okay not to be okay. It's not a sign of weakness. And then we also need to see how do we convert our society to be a place where mental health uh, and seeking for the same is not frowned upon. It is welcome. Even we as health workers, we're talking about also the professional stigma. When somebody tells us, do we say it's all right, you're in the right place? Or do we label them immediately and they, they, they are afraid to come to us? What makes people not come for mental health? Part of it is us, part of it is society, part of it is how we have been socialized. And all these have to be looked at when you are trying to improve the access for mental health. Right. <laughs> I think the access for mental health is a really big question and we have quite a big difference between gender and age groups. So as we were saying, younger kids now, I think a lot of them are voicing their anxiety, but we would like to give them some coping skills. And most of that can be given by somebody who's not a doctor or a health care practitioner. So we need to train our teachers, particularly for children, on how to give basic mental health advice impact and how to cope with it. Can I pause you very quickly, Prof, because I want to bring Nicola very, very quickly on there. Did you find that your burnout experience helps you be a lot more open with your young children now in terms of what they need to look out for? So for sure, I think it is when I can see my kids are not coping, because I was just going to say, I think it's about educating parents too. You know, if you've got a mom who's very rushed or is not there, I had a moment on the side of a cricket field last week and my husband said, sure, that was a stressful day, hey? And I said, yeah, he said, it would have been easier to be in the office. And I said to him, maybe, but thank goodness we were there because we taught my son a life lesson and a tool and a coping mechanism through a sports activity, which is very lighthearted. But I'm saying to have those those parents that are intimately involved in understanding what's going on with your kids. And it doesn't mean that you have to be there the whole time because really some people are in a far more privileged situation than others, etc. But it is around being present parents, to be quite honest. But yes, I think I could start to notice uh, you know, and I, you know your children, and both my children would react to certain things very differently. The one was, will withdraw, the other one will become very vocal, but about stuff that you know is just on the periphery. And it's to really understand your kids um, and go deeper with them in terms of being able to language something that they may be experiencing. Because to your point, the physiological thing is often what they complain about. You know, oh, mommy, my tummy doesn't feel well. Okay, why is the tummy not feeling well versus just giving them Bascopan? So anxiety typically presents with your tummy not feeling well. Don't just say, okay, you can stay at home today because now then the tummy's suddenly better <laughs> and you're going to reinforce the anxiety actually because you're not giving the skills of working through it. Mm. And I think, Nikki, when you said the loss of your mom and we're seeing so many young people now whose parents are living uh, in rural areas, but they're living in the urban areas and they've now got young children and the whole there's a whole cultural transition happening as well as the unstable economic times um, and the high levels of stress. And I see quite a, a large, or my impression is of a very large generation gap in a lot of our township populations and especially for kids whose parents have died which we see quite often commonly with HIV, the grandparents can't comprehend the 
children's desires and needs. Grandparents are coming from a very different background. So mm. It can create such an unhealthy dynamic, very, very though. Unhealthy. What intervention needs to then be put in place in order to bring a healthy balance back into that environment yeah. and that relationship? And I think conversations like these, I think having a podcast like this is fantastic just to start talking about it, talking about it within your communities as well, because we all have little pockets of slightly different value systems and slightly different images that we want to chase. We've started with sort of community mental health system. It is overwhelming. We are inundated with numbers of patients or people seeking help. I see my the doctors who work under me being completely burnt out with the workload and listening to problem after problem. I think teachers feel the same. They also have their stressors and their children and their workplace demands. And it's a completely undervalued career being a teacher. It's got no social status and it's got no money status, financial status. And yet the role that they're playing is enormous. And sometimes the problems seem insurmountable. But what a podcast like this has shown me is that when you've got corporate South Africa, when you've got Gauteng Health, for example, when you've got the World Health Organization, we can all come together and go, what is it that we need little by little? You know, how do you eat an elephant after all? Bite by bite. I love the lead role that Investec is taking in the wellness space. It is critical. It is the blueprint in my mind for the way that corporate, not just South Africa, but the corporate world over needs to really just acknowledge and identify some of these issues. And I think even if I look at Investec Life, who's obviously sponsoring and supporting this podcast, it's a insurance part of our business. But their whole mantra is they're going to support the societies who potentially would tap into their products by targeting real life issues for people and giving them things like education, tools, etc. through the way that they would express what they do to support, you know, our lifestyles. So I agree with you. I think it is critical. And I think social media is a huge deterrence for us around many aspects. But the one thing it can do is it can spread education and make it accessible. Well, everybody listening to this podcast will share widely. <laughs> we'll share it widely um, and we'll we'll really look for the positives in, in social media. I love the practical steps that have come out of this. For me, that is really, really important. Just some of the basics, one, two, three, it's okay not to be okay. Creative expressions, slow down. All of these are really great learnings in this moment. And it's not to say that those needing help shouldn't seek help. But for now, I think it's been a very, very valuable lesson for all and deep insights. Dr. Kifashio Mwangi, thank you. Prof. Leslie Robertson and Nicola Tega, I can't thank you enough. It has been an outstanding conversation today. Remember that your mental health can impact your physical health. Poor mental wellness can cause headaches, stomach aches, insomnia, and lead to more serious physical health issues. A healthy mind is an inherent part of a healthy body. We must move past the existing stigma and see physical and mental health equally. This brings us to the end of this episode in our Reimagined Mental Health series, brought to you by Investec Life, an authorised FSP and licensed insurer. If you'd like to listen to the next episode, please subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, farewell from me, Katie Katapodis, and the Investec Life team. (music) 